0: Good morning, and welcome to this week's public affairs program. I'm Jay Zimmer in the newsroom. My guest today is Zach Myers, the U.S. Attorney for the Southern District of Indiana. Is that correct? That is correct. Thank you, Jay. Mr. Myers, uh, you're a a fairly new appointee in this position. Can you explain that and how that happened? Sure.
1: In the summer of 2021, I was nominated by the president and then went through the Senate confirmation process. And I was confirmed and sworn in as U.S. attorney here um, in November of 2021. So I've been U.S. attorney for about 14, 15 months now. Uh, whom did you succeed? So my, the, the prior um, chief deputy was acting um, when I entered back into the office, and he continues to be my first assistant. But the prior presidential appointee was Josh Minkler, um, under, who served both under the, the Trump and Obama administrations.
0: I, I knew him quite well, and he uh, he was a big one for, for drug and gun enforcement. He was. He had great experience there. In fact, he was the chief of the
1: U.S. Attorney's Office's um, Drug, tra- drug uh, Prosecution Unit when I was a line assistant, although I was in the General Crimes Unit, so I had a chance to work under him, and he was a you know, fantastic you know, prosecutor to work with, and I'm glad to be able to you know, serve the office as well.
0: And you're succeed in your succeeding of him. You're you're prioritizing the same items, are you not?
1: So every administration has you know its priorities that they execute in a little different way, but also the threats change. Um, my predecessors and really no one in law enforcement has faced, for example, a threat like fentanyl. That to have a drug that just two milligrams of it can be a potentially lethal dose. You know a, enough drug just to really fill the tip of a pencil um, is a terrifying new threat because the numbers of overdoses that we've seen in the last few years and as the opioid crisis has kind of metastasized from in the you know prior couple of administrations you were seeing um, diversion of drugs that were obtained lawfully or people um, you know stealing or abusing you know prescription drugs but more and more now even when people think that they're getting prescription painkillers that they're taking if they're getting them on the street those aren't prescription painkillers what they're really getting is fakes what they're really getting is um, pills that are counterfeit that are, that are laced with fentanyl. And fentanyl is so strong of an opioid that it's basically poison. And the numbers of people who are dying of fentanyl overdoses you know, in the last several years are just something that law enforcement has never seen before. And so we're prioritizing prosecutions involving fentanyl uh, manufacture and distribution. I, I know everyone's aware of, we have a, a pending prosecution here um, of the, the fatal overdose of the child baby here a th- three-year-old who passed away as well as the one-year-old who um, had a non-fatal overdose that's the opperman
0: case isn't
1: it that is um we are prosecuting um two drug dealers who two alleged drug dealers who were in the home and who were tra- who are who are charged with trafficking in fentanyl resulting in death
0: what um, i don't understand maybe you could, maybe you have some insight people know that these pills will kill you people knows that fentanyl People know that fentanyl, as you said, with a small enough dose to cover the tip of a pencil will kill you. Why take the chance? Why do they do this? I don't get and it. I, I think part of
1: it is, you know, substance abuse disorder is just an awful disease. And it takes over your life and drives you to do things and take risks that you would never do but for the disease. So that, you know, the, the just the, the pure addiction is part of it. And the fentanyl is so strong. That people who might have built up a tolerance or no longer are getting that high that they used to and they're just using to stay well, <coughs> excuse me, that um, strong, strong drug is something that they're, they're seeking out. But a lot of the time, you know, when we talk about the, the fake pills and, you know, the DEA likes to make sure that we talk about the one pill can kill campaign because even though two milligrams can kill you it doesn't always it's a potentially lethal dose and so people are you know playing russian roulette and in the last year the dea analyzes you know a significant portion of the counterfeit pills that they seize and in the last year 60 percent of the counterfeit pills that they seize contained that two milligram potentially fatal dose and it depends on your body size and metabolism and usage history but You know, for for six out of 10 of these pills to be potentially lethal. And it's just terrifying. But a lot of people, they don't know that they're taking fentanyl. They think they're taking Oxycodone. They think they're taking, you know, Oxycontin. They think they are taking, you know, we're seeing fentanyl in methamphetamine. We're seeing fentanyl in marijuana. We're seeing fentanyl laced in pills that people think they're taking Ritalin and Adderall. So whenever you are taking a drug on the street, whether it's packaged as a pharmaceutical or as another controlled substance, there's a significant chance that there's fentanyl in it. And the reason for that is because fentanyl is dirt cheap, it is powerful, it is addictive, and the cartels who are primarily responsible for pushing it into our communities do not care about human life. They are just seeking to make money, and fentanyl, for them, they think is a great way to do it. And so.
0: Apparently, it is.
1: So it's incumbent upon us in law enforcement to do what we can to deter that behavior To, And I realize we've been trying to prosecute you know, drug. You know, we've been successfully prosecuting drug dealers for, for generations and they keep coming. But what we can do is find who are the fentanyl traffickers and the people involved in pushing that poison into our community who are having the greatest impact here. And what can we do to keep the public safe from them Because it's not just, you know, you you think about, because the the vast majority of fentanyl actually is coming from two cartels, that there's just two major international, multinational drug cartels based um, in Mexico who are operating, you know, essentially large industrial grade, you know, labs, um, manufacturing this poison with chemicals that they're obtaining from overseas, you know, typically from China or India or other countries. And they're getting these precursor chemicals they're taking them to these factories and they're creating either they're making the fake pills there or they're creating fentanyl powder that they're then shipping into the United States, you know, for in a variety of different ways. And, you know, we, we for example, we have someone charged um, in the Southern District of Indiana, you know, in the Evansville division with having a tableting machine. So they were buying fentanyl and um, they, I think they were getting their fentanyl allegedly in Louisville, Kentucky. And they were getting other chemicals for these pills um, off the internet and on the dark web, and they were combining these chemicals themselves in a house in Evansville, I believe, and mm. using a machine, a tableting machine like you would find in, you know, like an Eli Lilly factory, like in a, a pharmaceutical machine, and they're making the pills themselves, and they look just like real pills, and then they're selling those on the street. So that's what we're we're that's that's the fight that we're having and finding these people and stemming the tide of that as much as we can to try to save as many lives as we can because we know that we're really in a drug poisoning you know overdose crisis and in law enforcement you know targeting our resources to try and reducing that I think is (coughs) a top priority and getting back to your prior question is a priority that just wasn't on the radar five you know ten years ago because the chemical wasn't here and wasn't being dealt in the same way The, the shape of the opioid epidemic has changed and now it's about Cheap fentanyl coming from overseas, and we have to do what we can to stop it.
0: Fentanyl must be a terrific high.
1: I don't know, (laughs) but I'll tell you that fentanyl is an extremely powerful drug. I mean, it is a pharmaceutical that you know doctors can prescribe. It hardly, you know, I don't know that they 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 use it much in um, medical practice anymore because there's other, you know, I think different and safer drugs. But it's an extraordinarily powerful drug, and no one should be administering to themselves. And certainly, you know, when you're getting fentanyl that's being pressed in some guy's garage in Evansville, you have no idea in that counterfeit pill how much fentanyl is in that. You don't know what other junk is being put in that pill. You have no idea what you're putting in your body when you, you know, take those drugs.
0: Why is the federal government through the U.S. Attorney's Office becoming involved in this? Is this more or less a local thing when it comes down to the street? value of the drug?
1: Well, drug trafficking has always been a federal priority. Um, you know, it's a, it's a national, international market that we're dealing with, and we routinely have, you know, charges and prosecutions of individuals who are either getting their drugs from elsewhere and bringing them into the Southern District of Indiana or bringing them from the Southern District of Indiana to elsewhere. We have, you know, defendants we charge who are, you know, over, or who are outside the country or overseas. We have people who are operating large-scale drug trafficking organizations that cross the entire country, but also we have the dealers right here who have a significant impact. You know, particularly because they're dealing the most deadly poisons, because they're armed with deadly weapons and they're using violence in their drug trafficking. And so we use our federal authorities because you know you, you're you're right. We're a limited, you know, part of the system. You know, your local prosecutor's office has jurisdiction over almost everything. Federally, you know, there's a smaller slice of crimes that we're able to prosecute. And just from a resource standpoint, we're much smaller. I mean, there are, you know there are more prosecutors in the Vandenberg County Prosecutor's Office than there are in all of the Southern District of Indiana. Um, and the system's designed that way intentionally because you know, the feds, we come in and we're we're, taking, um, we're trying to take the biggest, highest impact, most complex cases, you know, cases that have a real federal interest. Um, and so when we're trying to choose which cases it makes sense to bring in federal court, because the penalties in federal court can be very serious. Um, you know, obviously there are serious penalties that come out of the state court as well, but we have a lot of, you know, our, our process is just different federally, and we have, you know, mandatory minimum penalties. Um, we, the, the ability for pretrial detention um, when the judge finds that it's appropriate because someone pending charges is a risk to the community or a risk of flight. Um, you know, the system's just different in, this, in the state or in the federal courts. But also, if you have a drug conspiracy, if you've got five people trafficking drugs together, and one of them's working out of you know Warwick County, and one of them's in Owensboro, and you know another one's in Phoenix. Um, we can charge all of those people for everything they did in one case, in one trial, here in our courtroom here in Evansville. And so this procedurally being able to take a bigger course of conduct and wrap it all up into one case and prosecute that in, in our courts is one of the benefits that just procedurally we have in bringing cases federally.
0: Do you have a couple of cases that you can tell us about that were, that are especially interesting to you?
1: Um, sure. We, we, we've got plenty. I want to make sure that I'm thinking um, just about the ones down here in the Evansville Division because we also have, obviously, the headquarters in Indianapolis, and we have courthouses and, and um, cases that we bring in the Terre Haute and New Albany area as well because um, we have the southern two-thirds of the state, so basically everything south of Lafayette is the southern district of Indiana. And <coughs> here, here in Evansville, you know, I mentioned the, the case involving um, Arsenal Wad and Jasmine Brown. Those cases are those charges against those defendants are pending, and of course they're innocent until proven guilty. Of course. But the distribution resulting in death is a very serious charge that we bring. We recently... Um, had here, and I apologize for not having the name of the defendant off the top of my head, but we prosecuted an individual who was using a 3D printer to um, create his own um, small bore, or smoothbore pistols. It's actually a, a, a special type of firearm that in and of itself is illegal for people to have without a special federal registration that almost no one has. So a prohibited firearm was being 3D printed here in Evansville by a convicted felon who wasn't allowed to have a gun in the first place. And he had other guns as well, and he was, I believe, also um, there was other criminal activity going on. But we prosecuted him for um, a number of offenses, including the unlawful possession of the firearm, for making these what we call ghost guns, firearms that, because they're privately manufactured um, in in the manner that they are, that there's no no serial number on the gun, so you can't trace it if you do recover it at a crime scene or or in the, the execution of a search warrant. You can't. Use records to look and see who first bought it to try to find where the gun came from. So, because they can't be traced, you know, we call them ghost guns, and they and they pose some enforcement challenges and investigation challenges. So. We, and that we, was in
0: Evansville that this happened.
1: Yes, it was. Um, you know, and I can get you the, the name of the defendant later, but yeah, okay. we, we can we convicted him last year, and he was sentenced to federal prison. Um,
0: Pick another case. Sure. This is interesting.
1: We recently had, and you know, there's certain things that federally, like only the feds can do. We recently um, prosecuted a case involving a uh, Chinese restaurant here in Evansville that um, the individuals were uh, convicted of um, immigration and really, you know, human trafficking type offenses for you know um, employment of you know undocumented folks and really exploitation of in- undocumented folks. You know in their kitchens and um housing them um in sort of substandard housing and kind of just like locking them into that work and not um you know, excuse me take taking advantage of them you know for the benefit of their business essentially you know purchasing people to come work from you know trafficking of humans and so we were able to bring federal charges there and hold you know get a felony conviction and hold that individual accountable um but despite you know only having you know four criminal prosecutors right now in evansville um, our office is extraordinarily busy. We have brought, you know, a number of um, what we call uh, OCDF, or Organized Crime and Drug Enforcement Task Force, um, prosecutions of, you know, 10, 20, 30 um, defendants in large-scale drug trafficking organizations. The, the um, OCEDEF program is, you know, the, the task force comprised of, you know, uh, federal and state and local agents, you know, the DEA, ATF, FBI, all of like you know, HSI, all the like federal alphabet um, organizations, but also Indiana State Police and the, the Metro Drug Task Force here in Evansville, you know, the Evansville PD, um, Vanderburgh County Sheriff's Office, um, and even, you know, some of our partners in Warwick County and some of the surrounding areas. We, um, you know, we work really closely together to build and bring some of these, you know, really bigger cases um, to the federal courts because, you know, the only way we can bring kinds of prosecutions that we need to to try to have an impact on public safety and, and you know violent crime or drug trafficking um, or even you know complex fraud and corruption is to work together you know across law enforcement
0: let's talk about human trafficking for a moment we've, absolutely we've done a couple of shows on that can you tell me what that is and what the value is to the perpetrators sure so when we talk about human
1: trafficking on the federal side we're, we're typically talking about sort of really two species of human trafficking sort of labor trafficking and kind of related human smuggling, where people are being made to work through force, fraud, coercion. You know, it's not the normal, you know, choice of, you know, the freedom of choice to engage in an employment relationship that, you know, all of us are, you know, entitled to, you know, under the law and constitution. And instead, um, people are being forced, you know, it's, you know, tantamount to slavery in a lot of cases. And in addition to labor trafficking, though, we also fight, and it's really insidious, you know, sex trafficking. Um, where individuals, um, frequently, frequently girls and women, but sometimes, you know, boys and men as well, um, are being made by force, fraud, or coercion, or when they are children, to engage in commercial sex acts for the benefit of somebody else. Um, and, you know, people will... Unfortunately, you know, the, the, the commercial sex marketplace is something that has probably already, always existed. But um, the trafficking of children... Is something that is you know just particularly heinous, and many of these children are particularly vulnerable. Um, they might be in the child welfare system, or in you know difficult homes. Even if they're not system involved, um, you have a lot of adult victims of sex trafficking who are. You know, we were talking about the opioid crisis. Many of them are suffering from substance use disorder, whether it's opioids or other um, other substances, and these traffickers, these pimps. Will take advantage of that and control them, whether it's through violence, through access to the drugs, through just manipulation of, particularly of children, um, convincing them. And you know, we're talking frequently about teens, you know, 17, 16, 15, 14. I mean, I prosecuted a trafficker of a 13-year-old girl, and you know, they sometimes convince them that, oh, I'm in love with you, I'm your boyfriend, but you're going to go see all of these guys and have sex with them for money and give me the money and it's just such a terrible crime and the penalties are so severe on the federal side because of it and you know the cases are difficult you have you know victims who've been victims of all sorts of different traumas in addition to the trauma of the case that you're dealing with and frequently they still have a relationship with or even positive feelings toward the person who's exploiting them so you know that adds a, a layer of complexity to the cases but you know when we talk about focusing our resources to have the greatest impact on public safety, there's few things I can think of that have that greater impact than getting someone who is trafficking, particularly children in sex, you know, off the streets.
0: You hear a lot about these stories that you're talking about, but most of us here would think to ourselves, "Oh, that's New York, that's <laughs> Chicago, that's not Evansville." Oh, it's not just not Evansville. You know, it's not just Evansville. You know, that's
1: you know, that's does Pike, it happen here? That's Pike County. That that's everywhere. the The fact of the matter is, you can go on the internet. And, you know, when you see, unfortunately, a lot of people know how to go on the internet and find commercial sexual services if they want. And what they don't realize is that the person on the other end of that transaction may not be doing that by choice and may not even be an adult. And, you know, it happens everywhere. It happens more in bigger cities because there's more people. But unfortunately, children are trafficked in smaller cities, in rural areas, in suburbs. And it is not just a big city problem, but the, the market looks different and the pattern of the crime looks different everywhere. And sometimes people are being exploited and trafficked by people in their home who said they should be able to trust the most. So, you know, we work with law enforcement to educate them and to help through them educate the public, but also have an eye out for kind of the, the red flags of something wrong is going on. Because it's not, you know, it's not like the movies. It's not guys in white vans picking a girl up, you know, off the street corner on her way to school, and you know, whisking her away, you know, to another country. Um, you know, it is people who are in difficult situations who get manipulated, coerced, or forced into doing these things that you know they may not want to do, or may not even be benefiting from themselves financially, as opposed to the person taking advantage of them.
0: How do you enforce? How do you investigate? crimes of this nature
1: there's a lot of different ways um when a suspected trafficking case comes to our attention whether it's through like a child advocacy center or a report from you know maybe you have a traffic stop and a a local cop sees something that just isn't quite right and someone who's got a a bunch of phones and all these um you know other kind of indicia that commercial sex work's going on and an individual who just doesn't look like quite right um, and, you know, they're, they're, you know, the spidey sense goes off. So there's all sorts of ways that a case might come in, but also we'll work proactively, you know, we'll look and see where people are being, you know, advertised for sexual services and go and, you know, through an undercover pa- capacity, intervene there and see if we can build, you know, a, an appropriate prosecutable case um, if there's trafficking involved there. So there's a number of different ways that those cases start.
0: There's a lot of internet involved here. You're watching what people are saying on, on the computers.
1: Very much. And, you know, either because they're saying things in public or they're saying things to law enforcement or because, you know, we have court authorization. Um, I'm a cybercrime prosecutor by sort of training and experience more than anything else. And one of the things I always you know, have, have taught other prosecutors and law enforcement is that, you know, in 2023, um, all crime is cybercrime. That whether it's human trafficking, drug trafficking, gun trafficking or trafficking in commercial or in a child sexual abuse material that or even just possessing guns unlawfully you have felons who are taking selfies with their illegal firearms and posting them to Facebook and so yes you, you, law enforcement is going to arrest them and seize that gun but they're also going to seize that that individual's phone and get a search warrant they're going to get a search warrant to search that Facebook account and get that data because no matter what the crime is today all of us are walking around with one or more devices in our pockets that are orders of magnitude more powerful than the computers used to put a man on the moon. And what that means is that we're constantly creating electronic data everywhere we go. And some of that, when we're involved in a crime, either as a witness, victim, or perpetrator, is evidence of crime. And so, One of the things that we do, particularly on the federal side, is make sure that we're getting, but also our state and local partners do the same, make sure that we're getting all of that evidence so that we can bring successful prosecutions. So we're getting search warrants for, you know, email companies and social media providers. We're executing warrants to examine the data on phones, on watches, um, on cars. People don't realize that, you know, a car is basically a, a computer with wheels these days and contains data that can be important in a criminal prosecution so our job is to try to stay ahead of you know both ahead of the bad guys but also just up to speed on the technology so that we know where the evidence is and that we can put together you know the kinds of investigations that you know have real impact on the public and that are successful beyond a reasonable doubt because the jury sees um, or the defendant sees the evidence and chooses not to go to trial because they realize how strong the case is and they want to take responsibility but You know, one of the things that we really try to do is build, you know, build the strongest, most impactful, most, um, and sometimes it ends up being very complex, case that we can. And getting all that electronic evidence is a big part of that.
0: This may seem like a silly question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Sure. In terms of the the enforcement, in terms of the investigation, are there any 007-like devices and investigative methods that you use to ferret out these people?
1: Well, what what I was what I was just talking about before is is sort of the the work that we do and the tools that we use in the criminal investigations and with court authority. Um, prior to being US attorney, I was an assistant US attorney and one of the things I served as was cybercrime counsel in my prior districts, um, National Security and Cybercrime Section. And so National Security and Cyber is much of what I've done and you know you see that the the professionals and you know on the technology um, intelligence and law enforcement side, they're really just amazing, hardworking. Um, you know, they're they're trying to protect the country, and they have some very you know fantastic um, tools that they use to do it. And that's you know, what I was those, asking. About. And 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 those of us you know who of course have put our hand up and sworn to protect and defend the Constitution have also you know sworn to make sure that we're protecting the nation's secrets. So I won't given I won't get into anything yeah. I can't talk about. But I will say that you know the the public, if if the public knew all of the things that these hardworking professionals in the national security world and intelligence world are doing to keep our country safe, I think, honestly, they'd be really proud of them and I'm really impressed. And that we are, you know, in the, we, there's a reason that we are, you know, the, the leader of the free world. And we have some really just fantastic, dedicated people who serve this country and who serve it with some really sort of um, brilliant and excellent work.
0: Tell me a little about Zach Myers in our last couple of minutes. Where do you come from? Where sure. was your education?
1: Well, I, I, I grew up in Indianapolis. Um I was fortunate enough what to What side of town? Nor, northwest side of Indianapolis.
0: I grew up on the east side. Oh, excellent. My, my township.
1: My uh, my granddad uh and, and my dad grew up on the on the near east side of Indianapolis. But I grew up on the northwest side and um uh, moved in and out of the state a couple of times, but primarily I was on the Where'd you go side. to high school? Um, I went to uh, Park Tudor in Indianapolis until um, when I was in high school, we moved to the Detroit area. And so I finished high school up at uh, Detroit Country Day in Michigan. Um, And then I went to uh, Stanford University out in California and uh, got my master's at uh, GW in D.C. and worked on Capitol Hill. Um, And then I went to law school in D.C. at Georgetown and great school it, it it was great to be at I really enjoyed it I learned a lot had great teachers and really got inspired to become a federal prosecutor there um and I was fortunate enough to get a job to come back home to Indianapolis and worked at a law firm um in the city for a few years until I was um, fortunate enough to get hired by a former U.S. Attorney Hogsett um, in 2011 and so I was an assistant U.S. Attorney in Indianapolis for about three years and then um, moved to uh, Baltimore, and I was an assistant U.S. attorney there um, doing both major crimes and then national security and cyber um, in the District of Maryland for about eight, eight and a half years before um, being fortunate enough to be confirmed to take this job and come back home to run the U.S. attorney's office.
0: What's next?
1: I have no idea. <laughs> I think what what's next is uh, continuing to do this job as long as they'll let me. I am, you know, fortunate And, you know, privileged and honored to get to serve on behalf of the people of the United States. And I look forward to doing that for as long as I can.
0: Thank you for joining us for this week's public affairs program. I'm Jay Zimmer. For all of us at Midwest Communications Evansville, make it a great week.